Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, public lecture by Dr. Axel Weber uh, on behalf of LSE, the Systemic Risk Center, and the Center for International Studies. Um, if you would like to tweet, the, uh, the handle is hashtag LSE Markets. I would ask that you uh, please switch your phone to silent, uh, if you could. Um, the way this would go is that uh, I would introduce Dr. Weber. He'll give us his uh, lecture, and then we'll have a conversation. I'll ask him a few questions, and then we'll open it up to uh, the audience. Uh, if I, uh, I'll just take a moment to introduce myself. My name is Lutfi Siddiqui. I'm a visiting professor in practice uh, here at LSE. Uh, I'm a member of the Court of Governors at LSE and also uh, uh, on the advisory board of the Systemic Risk Center. Uh, Dr. Axel Weber is, is uniquely distinguished in multiple domains. Uh, he's currently chair of the board of directors uh, at UBS. Uh, he chairs the governance and nominating committees and, and the corporate culture committees uh, at UBS. He's concurrently chairman of the International Institute of International Finance, IIF, uh, president of the International Monetary Conference, um, and many other industry bodies. He's perhaps most well known for his time as president of the German Bundesbank between 2004 and 2011, uh, when he was also member of the governing council of the ECB. Um, he was a member of the board of directors of BIS, uh, governor, the German governor of, uh, at the IMF, uh, and a member of the G7, G20 ministers and governors forums. Especially uh, exciting for us, those of the Systemic Risk Center. He was a member of the steering committees of the European Systemic Risk Board uh, and the Financial Stability Board. Uh, prior to that, he was an academic with the University of Cologne and briefly uh, as a visiting professor at the uh, Chicago Business School. It's often alleged that there is a communication gap, almost a Mars-Venus separation between the world of politics and the world of markets. And it's very hard to find people who are able to straddle both and bridge the gap. And to that extent, I can't think of anyone better qualified to help us uh, bridge that gap. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Axel Weber. Thank you, Lutfi, and uh, thank you for inviting me here. Uh, we met a couple of times when he didn't tell you that he was at UBS, and uh, we worked closely together on some of our wealth management business, and uh, we very much regretted to let him go, but of course, knowing the destination that he will be here, uh, we felt that that was a good move for him. I remember this room. I see Charlie Bean in the audience and uh, Charles. Last time I was here on this stage was with Mervyn's farewell. Uh, when he left the bank, and it was actually a podium discussion here with Mervyn, Ben Bernanke, Jean-Claude Trichet, Larry Summers, and I. So uh, it was an interesting debate, and uh, at the time, we were just coming out of uh, the real firefighting exercise of the crisis, trying to draw some early lessons on how the crisis went and what central banks did. A few years on, there's still the perception, at least when you're in this part of the Atlantic, that we're still fighting crises. Actually, we've added a few. And I'm going to talk a bit about the interplay between markets and politics because I think that interplay is an important one. And what I would like to do is to try and bring a bit of sense to that. And you know, every time I give a talk like this, I take a weekend where I sit down and put a few thoughts on paper, which is a rare exercise I do nowadays because running a day-to-day -day operation like a large global bank, you don't have too much time to do that. So it's a great pleasure to be back, great pleasure to be here, and actually it's quite a challenge to talk at the London School of Economics about the interplay between markets and economics because this place is known for the excellence in economics, for the excellence in understanding politics, and for the excellence in finance. And so I'm going to basically carry pigeons to Rome. But let me maybe start with how I look at politics and markets. In my view, the interplay between markets and politics has changed dramatically over the recent years. 
For the past several decades, politics did not play much of a role for markets, at least in advanced economies. Political uncertainty and volatility was basically due to, due to politics primarily in emerging markets. And that's why we looked at emerging markets as a separate asset class with more volatility and political uncertainty was a big part of that uncertainty related to emerging markets. In developed economies, we experienced the primacy of economics and markets over politics. In other words, economics and markets drove politics, not the other way around. And actually, when you look back, and let me just remind you, one of the famous examples was actually the words, it's the economy, stupid. Basically, the campaign slogan of Bill Clinton, in which he used the 1992 presidential election and campaigned based on the early 90s experience of the US recession to successfully unseat George Bush Sr. Economics at the time drove politics, <coughs> and focusing on economics and solving crisis, and given a perspective, was a way to change politics and to get into power. However, in my view, the primacy of economics and markets over politics has changed. Here in this country, in my view, it has ended at the latest on the, 27th, on the 23rd of June 2016, where basically the UK decided to leave the EU, accepting potential major adverse economic consequences as a result of this. Just a few months later, the US followed suit when politics literally trumped economics at the ballot box. <laughs> Brexit and the outcome of the US presidential elections have brought politics back as a major source of uncertainty and as a major driver of economic outcomes and financial markets, even as in developed and mature markets, which wasn't the case in the past. Today, going back to Clinton's original words, it's politics, stupid, not economics. The benign outcome in Europe over recent years of the elections in the Netherlands and the France is often quoted as having changed that. I don't think that's true. I don't think these benign election results end political uncertainty or provide more gravitas for markets again. Neither will the current economic upswing in Europe, which is cyclical, nor the likely positive outcome of the German elections later this month. Political uncertainty will still be at the center stage. Italian and Greek elections will be looming here in Europe on the horizon. The Macron reform is now facing the street credibility test. You could say, looking back here in the UK, there is a autumn of discontent likely to happen in France. And British and US politics is basically undergoing a severe reality check in markets over the next quarters. So where does that bring us? The cause of political uncertainty in Western economies basically comes from a number of origins. There is a growing sense of unease and a growing discontent among an increasing share of our populations. Most of the underlying reasons for this are structural rather than cyclical. A permanent decline in economic growth rates and economic prospects, job insecurity, stagnation or even declining real wages, and above all, growing inequality. The discontent can only be covered temporarily by a better performing cyclical upswing in the European economies. But it will be back with a downturn. And the one thing we know in economics, the next downturn will happen. And in my view, it is not so far out in time. Political uncertainty is not confined to the West, though. I don't need to tell you about the geopolitical situation that is very strained. Keywords, if you're looking for geopolitical risks or regions, is Qatar, South China Sea, Syria, North Korea, Ukraine, and that order of hotspots in the global economy for geopolitical reasons changes by the day. According to an economic policy uncertainty index published by three US uh, scholars, global economic policy uncertainty has never been as high as in January this year. Since January, political uncertainty has fallen somewhat, but it's now still, as of July, in its 75th percentile. That is, only 25% of the time this 
index has been at a more elevated level. It is clearly still at an elevated level, and if some of my concerns about the future of Europe come true, probably political uncertainty will increase rather than decrease over the remainder of this year and next year. Geopolitical risks, too, are currently very high. According to a geopolitical risk index presented recently in a working paper by the Federal Reserve, geopolitical risk is currently, as of August, in its 98th percentile. That is, only 2% of the times it was higher than it is perceived now. So a huge amount of uncertainty, both geopolitical and geostrategic. Let me mention an additional source of uncertainty. You won't be surprised. I think it's monetary policy. I currently do not consider monetary policy only as a policy variable, one of the two major forces on driving the cyclical economy. I also consider it as a risk factor, at least when looked upon by markets. Why? I think there are a number of areas where, when you look forward, central banks face major challenges at this point in time. And as often in central banking, we just mentioned uh, the Passover here uh, from Mervyn King to the new governor, there are defining moments when central bank governors change, and we're facing such changes in the U.S., not just with Janet Yellen, but basically five governors of the previous board will be changing over the next few months, and it's completely uncertain at this point in time, and maybe just less than half a year away, who will be the future decision makers in the Federal Reserve that will have a big impact and a long-term consequence for the way the market looks at the dollar, for the way the market assesses U.S. policy going forward, and many of these uncertainties will only be resolved over time. And if the sort of stages of hearings in the U.S. Senate and Congress are anything to go by, it will not be a quick Passover. There might be actually quite an interim period where the appointment process will drag slowly on and where uncertainty will actually increase. And another thing that is important is, as governors come to the end of the term, they're looking more at how they will be looked at through history books rather than through actual market lenses. And very clearly, if you look at uh, how central banks move, that could create some different incentives between the average of the committee and the governor or those that transition off the committee and those that will transition on. I don't think these personal issues are very important in monetary policy, but it clearly, when you look back when Ben Bernanke left the Federal Reserve, one thing that he was adamant was after having started the biggest monetary policy experiment in history, he actually wanted to at least do the first step in unwinding part of the additional liquidity and the quantitative easing policies at the time, and the taper tantrum, which was about half a year away from the end of his term, was largely caused because the announcement around starting to wind down these purchases was at the time not fully digested by markets and I think at the time probably also not in full discussed on the committee. So you can have moments in time where the changeover at central banks plays also a role short term on how markets perceive central bank policy. But apart from these individual incentives, the institutions also and their incentives have to be taken into account. The ECB and the Federal Reserve are politically independent, both of them, but they're under political pressure. And you can see that very clearly in the discussion in the U.S. about audit the Fed, and that is something that will put huge pressure on decision processes. <coughs> in the case of the ECB, the traditional objectives of price stability and financial stability, which have basically been the core of the mandate, have recently been implicitly at least augmented and con um, augmented and complemented by another objective, and that is to prevent the breakup of the Eurozone. And that is a very political mandate. So politics will flow into decision-making processes inevitably at central banks, and the economy will be part of what the central banks will look at, but political issues will be an issue. A second one is that basically coming towards the end of monetary policy easing, there is a significant source of uncertainty that is related to the fact that actually monetary policy is still in uncharted territory. Never before have central bank balance sheets been so large. Never before have global monetary policies been so expansionary. And if you look at 
my preferred measure of the stance of global monetary policy, the monetary base globally still grows at 10%. So we're not talking about restrictive monetary policy. Monetary policy is still easy. Never before have interest rates been so low or in some countries so far in negative territory, and never before has debt been so high. That's a very complicated set of long-run issues central banks need to navigate around. And actually, political disruptions, like the discussion of Brexit, has huge implications on European markets and on how markets trade. Let me just give you an example from Switzerland. On the day of Brexit, the Swiss yield curve, which is in negative territory out to 15 years, was trading in negative territory over the entire maturity range. The longest existing instrument in the Swiss market, which was a Swiss government bond, eine Anleihe der Eidgenossenschaft, which was 62 years of a 65-year remaining maturity, dipped into negative territory at the time. The only financial decision investing into sovereign bonds in Switzerland at the time was a trade-off between taking a small loss for a short period of time or taking an even smaller loss for a longer period of time. But there was no real good investment alternatives domestically when priced off the sovereign. Now, when you look forward, I think these uncertainties related to monetary policy and the whole question about what is the transmission mechanism of QE? What are the side effects of QE? What adverse effects can we expect as quantitative easing is phased out? All of these questions have huge standard errors around them, and we're much more uncertain about making predictions around these unusual forms of monetary policy than we are about regular monetary policy when we are in positive territory. So we're in uncharted waters, and I think uncharted waters have the unpleasant characteristic that they basically may hide some unpleasant surprises. I wouldn't say that central banks are sailing blindly, but I definitely think that there is elevated risks and normalization of monetary policy comes with elevated risks. And that's why my expectation, first and foremost, is that most single banks will basically try and take it slow. They will err on the side of caution. And to all of those that are concerned about a too abrupt monetary policy normalization, I think central banks are taking that into account. So my expectation is that markets at the moment are still too optimistic about the normalization that is ahead. I think the central banks will trade a very careful course and the big expectations that loom for, say, the ECB meeting this week or other policy meetings are likely to be disappointed because most central banks haven't had, at least in Europe, the substantial debates on their committees that you need in order to map out a longer-term uh, perspective, like, for example, phasing out quantitative easing. Note that, in particular, the precise effects of tapering, ending and reversing QE, are largely unknown. Uh, the effects depend on whether QE works through the stock effect or through the flow effect of a central bank's balance sheet. In other words, is it the size of the central bank's balance sheet which determines the stance of monetary policy and affects financial markets? U.S. monetary policymakers have largely focused on that. But in my view, the size of purchases, and that's the view of markets, matters too. So sales and purchases will affect the stance of monetary policy and financial market as well. In the first case, where you have a stock effect being relevant, tapering and doing that slowly and building it up and ending or reversing QE will have relatively little, if any, effects on financial markets. And in the second case, if the flow effects are of relevance, those tapering and ending or reversing QE policies could have more significant effects. And I think like often in reality, it's probably not wise to just assume the first and exclude the latter. In my view, it is very likely that QE has probably had both stock and flow effects, and therefore I think some of the evaluation that the stock effect is a dominant factor might be a bit too benign. So in that case, there could be more uncertainties and actually more effects ahead. A second issue that central banks quarrel with is that Despite all the multitudes of uncertainties I talked about, political, geopolitical, monetary policy related, financial markets are unusually calm. The VIX, a popular 
measure of implied volatility of U.S. stocks markets, or often referred to as the fear index, hit an all-time record low of 8.84 in July this year, and never before has the VIX closed below 10 as often as it has this summer. And that's a huge concern, because on the one hand side, uncertainty is massive, but volatility in markets is extremely low. How can this discrepancy between high volatility, between high uncertainty and record low volatility in markets be explained? I think here, my view has been for some time that we're dealing with something that is actually genuine uncertainty. We're not dealing with risk. We're dealing with something that is like Nietzschean uncertainty, named after Frank Knight, the famous University of Chicago economist. And let me go a bit deeper into that. Risk, or you could say the known unknowns, referred, referring to the famous statement of U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld of 2002, risks denote the things that we know we don't know. And if you look at risks, the one thing that financial markets are built on is on risk. Risk can be identified, it can be assessed, it can be discounted, it can be assured, it can be traded. In financial markets and what we do in banks, it's all about risk management and risk mitigation. We know how to deal with risk. Not always. Financial crisis tells you sometimes you can get it wrong, and the financial industry has got it badly wrong in the last financial crisis, but risk is something that has been prevalent and is not. Uncertainty, on the other hand, denotes, in Rumsfeld terminology, the unknown unknowns. Uncertainty means ignorance about the underlying mechanism, about the probability distribution, or even worse, about any potential outcomes. Uncertainty can't be identified, it can't be discounted, it can hardly be traded, and in my view, it is very hard to insure against. Politics is a prime example that creates uncertainty, but not risk. Politics is complex, the outcomes of human interaction, very often not predictable, very hard to understand, and politics is characterized, in my view, by the impossibility of actually putting down a probability distribution for potential outcomes and assigning probabilities to these events. Not all of politics, but some of politics. Financial markets, and I said that, are very good at discovering, trading, pricing, and insuring risk. However, financial markets are not very good at mapping political uncertainty. <coughs> uncertainty, by definition, cannot be priced. That's why markets often ignore uncertainty and take a wait-and-see attitude. And I think that's what you largely see when you talk to clients. When I talk to our wealth management clients, they do not take investment decisions. They're waiting for events to unfold till they feel more comfortable, and they will trade if they perceive uncertainty to be reduced. Decision-making theory suggests that other behavior than optimizing expected returns might kick in in a situation where uncertainty prevails rather than risk, and I'll talk about that a bit later on. Consequently, the materialization of political uncertainty can cause major disruptions in financial markets and sudden volatility. If you look at uncertainty, very often one way of looking at uncertainty is, for example, by looking at minimax strategies. If you look at minimax strategies, the natural outcome of there is you assign 50-50 probabilities to an event. 50-50 probability events cannot be traded. And so you don't trade the event before it occurs, you trade out of the event after it has occurred, which means volatility can jump suddenly as those events unfold. And as a consequence, when political uncertainty materializes, it sometimes has very profound effects and causes disruptions in financial markets with a sudden increase in volatility. Low financial market volatilities are therefore deceptive. They may actually understate the risks. The current environment of high uncertainty, elevated valuations, low yields poses for me a major challenge for investors. And I want to finish by maybe giving you a few indications how investors that I meet and some of our investors react to this huge uncertainty. 
How can you deal with that in financial markets? Under normal circumstance, an optimal asset allocation maximizes risk-adjusted expected returns. However, in the presence of uncertainty, it is neither possible to identify these expected returns nor to identify the risk properly. Decision-making under uncertainty is different, therefore, from decision-making under risk. Maximizing expected utility does not work in that circumstance. Under uncertainty, one of the most primary aims of investors is to insure against bad outcomes. So alternative decision rules are very often needed. One such decision rule, robust controls, is the minimax rule that I refer to, where basically instead of maximizing expected returns, one aims at minimizing the loss arising from a worst possible outcome. The principle behind minimax strategies is to find a solution that is robust to a wide range of differential outcomes. Brexit, in my view, is such an event. It is an event where worst-case scenario planning, which many embark on, might actually have a huge risk of self-fulfilling prophecies. <coughs> and that is something that you need to take into account when you focus on events like this unfolding. Another one is theory called information gap closing, where you don't define the worst case outcome, but you define for yourself a sufficiently satisfactory level of utility you want to achieve, and you maximize towards that. Those who agree that high uncertainty is a key theme at the moment should therefore first and foremost seek diversification, both over currencies and over asset classes. Diversification under uncertainty in my view, is even more important than diversification under risk. By diversifying, the chance of a big loss due to random events is reduced as much as possible. And portfolios that are pretty diversified are really at the core of wealth and asset management, but actually the uncertainty that is related to these events has led to a lot of investors staying on the sidelines and not investing at all. It's something you might call the COBRA effect. One of the potential worst-case scenarios that I also look at is inflation. Protecting against this type of uncertainty means, therefore, protecting against inflation. And when inflation is currently low and expecting to remain low is not a good reason not to basically buy inflation, inflation protection. The debate around central banks at the moment is very much why is inflation so low and why hasn't it come up? And there is a discussion whether the Phillips curve and some of our understanding of how the macroeconomy works is still relevant. I think it is, and I think we will see inflation kick in at some point in time when output gaps close. We're not yet at that stage. But for investors, ruling out such a scenario is not a wise investment strategy. Likewise, when you look at safe havens, they are usually playing a big role in bad times such as the Swiss franc, the Japanese yen, gold, other currencies that have perceived safe haven and protection status. We're seeing those alternatives play a big role when clients talk about how they want to diversify. And also safe havens are very often leading to diversifications within the eurozone that investors from the periphery are seeking investments in the core, and what has been driving down yields in Germany has largely been a flow of capital from peripheral investments to core investments. So some of the underlying market dynamics actually reflect such concerns on the side of investors. Something else that is important when weathering uncertainty in financial markets is flexibility. And I think that is probably the most underappreciated uh, factor. One must be prepared to change course fast, rapidly, and flexibly. Liquidity and highly liquid assets provide the flexibility to do that. And that's why, for me, it's not surprising that many of the investors sit on cash because cash offers them exactly that flexibility to trade out of events rather than to trade the event itself. We must also know the underlying mechanism of taking decisions. When we talk about emergency planning and planning around Brexit, it is very important that with such an uncertainty, 
you always need to think ahead. Uncertain events as they unfold provide new information. Every speech of the Prime Minister, every report about negotiations in Brussels will offer new data points that are evaluated and that will be priced into what the ultimate outcome of a risk like Brexit will be. Now, it's not enough to price that. You need to also change the way you take decisions. Usually when you take decisions, you don't take a decision on the decision tree. But if you have unfolding events that unfold fast, it's very important to have your contingency planning laid out in form of a decision tree so that as a data point leads you to a bifurcation, you take that avenue and you've planned it well ahead. And that's actually one of the things that I find is quite astonishing about these huge political risks that they can actually, with every bifurcation in your planning, lead to non-reversible and regret moves. And that's usually not the way we plan financial investments. So uncertainty in financial markets, and in particular political uncertainty, where it's very hard to understand the end point, for example, of negotiations, will cause quite different behavior in financial markets and in contingency planning on how to deal with such an event than normal risks that markets trade. Which for me, sort of just to add a voice of cautious, means as financial institutions are challenged by their regulators to come up with emergency plans and with contingency plans for events like this, you actually are starting to take decisions down a decision tree which lead you in a direction which may be very hard to reverse. So for me, the thinking ahead and understanding well where situations like Brexit or other political events will take you is something that is more and more dominating our research departments and our economic departments. And that's why I think that what we try and do at the banking community is to understand better not just market risk and economic developments, we also have to understand better political risks. And in particular, against that background, we're actually putting a lot of money into research. We're putting a lot of money into funding of universities. We're putting money into having the types of people educated at universities that we can use in our planning departments to not just do your usual economic and market and finance operations, but to also understand better how politics influences events. Let me come to a close. I think political uncertainty is a new factor that goes beyond risk and volatility. It's something that mature markets have to start to live with and that banks have to start to put at the core of their strategies. In particular, if you're in the business of investment and investment advice, investment decisions need to be different in a world where political uncertainty plays a big role. We're not yet there. Most of the financial institutions still have to invest heavily to give clients not just good economic and finance advice, but to actually be able to navigate difficult political environments you need to invest to do that, and it's something that I think will have a good return in the future. Thank you very much for your attention, and I hand back to the floor. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Weber. Could I, uh, before I start with my questions, uh, to help me do my asset allocation between my questions and your questions, how many of you would like to ask a question? Could I see a show of hands? That's quite a lot. Okay, I'll try and, and be economical with mine. Uh, so. uh, somebody described the current state of, of uh, investments or trading as um, it's like playing squash uh, in the middle of an earthquake where the tremors are permanent. So you just don't know what is structural and what's cyclical. A huge adjustment. Um, you've taken us through uh, various approaches in which that can be tackled. If I could go back to the issue of communication between policymakers and the markets, uh, would you say there's too much or too little? And one observation I make now is that within five minutes of non-farm payroll coming out, you see one of the Fed governors on CNBC. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? No, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that uh, policymakers comment on economic events as they unfold, uh, because it gives you a data point on how the policymaker evaluates developments in the real economy. 
What for me is much more important is that many of the inputs we now need, say, for strategic discussions on location policy really depend on political outcome. And I refer to Brexit just as one example, uh, but I don't think there's too much communication. I think what is the problem very often is communication. It's too diverse. Uh, if you have uh, a committee, uh, one view is not always prevalent. So you need to understand the dynamics of an entire committee. And in the past, we've seen many economists trying to follow hawkometers and sort of you know composition indices. Charlie's been at the receiving end of that, and Charles, uh, because they try and understand given individual views, how does that aggregate to a view of the committee and of the view of the policymakers? So I don't think central banks can muni communicate too much, but I think that communication needs to be coherent and it needs to give a very good impression on where the committee as a whole rather than individual members go, and that is something that probably is not as much due to the communication of committee members, but basically to the guidance that is given by written statements that give you a good impression about where the distribution of the votes are. I think this, uh, you know, the votes that the U.S. publishes on descending governors is a very useful element. And when I was a central bank governor, which is some years ago now, one of the things I noticed was actually that uh, the ability to voice a descending view was very limited in a new institution like the ECB. It evolved over time, but it is very important to provide that transparency and being forced into a committee consensus is probably not the best way of communicating. So I do actually appreciate these speeches. With a pinch of salt, you need to understand that this is the view of a individual, but you need to aggregate that to an institution view, and that's where the written statements, that's where the policy statements that are agreed upon and are the basis contractual arrangement for communication with the markets are more important than on-the-fly speeches of governors. But you need to make that distinction, but I wouldn't say it is something that uh, the market uh, should not have. All of, these, all of these views are helpful in assessing where the right. situation goes. In terms of the big guns of policy action that's going on all at the same time, uh, would you say there is some dissonance or almost negating of one against the other if you take monetary policy thrust, bank regulation, pulling in perhaps another direction, um, the aim for financial stability on one the one hand, but political event risk on the other. How do they, do they compound, do they negate? What's the state of risk overall right now? I think we're in an economy that faces at the moment elevated levels of risk, despite the fact that uh, indices on volatility don't suggest that. And I think it has largely to do with the fact that if you want to take a good decision based on if events unfolding, very often in decision theory or in game theory, we basically take the final outcome and try and devise our strategy through a backwardation from that ultimate outcome into how do I get to a good decision at down the road. That is very difficult to do because many policymakers, as your domestic uh, political environment, do not know the end outcome, for example, of the negotiations around Brexit. So it's very hard for us as banks to form a coherent strategy with a key element into our decisions missing at this stage. And I think that is something we're seeing increasingly. If you look at, uh, just to not talk about uh, the UK environment, look at the US. Uh, some of the major initial pricing of the market, the Trump rally, has been there because there was a huge probability assigned to the fact that we will get a massive tax reduction to the lower teens or to the, to the upper teens. Uh, 15 was the number that was initially traded. We would get uh, a number of uh, initiatives that would reduce red tape. We would get more economic stimulus. We would get an infrastructure investment program that would have beneficial effects. Look at where we're trading now. If you look at how the market is evaluated and basically then come down to reality on the Trump trade, I would say we're almost there where most of the initial euphoria has been priced out, and now there's a big question mark on whether the same administration that was used very positively six months ago can actually get things or any of these things done or whether everything will be caught up in the political uh, fighting between uh, Congress, the Senate, and the administration. So another example where political events are a key ingredient in how the economy develops and having huge uncertainty around the future course of policy is something that can be a very negative impact on markets. And as some, of these, as some of these events unfold, you get big pricing moves in the market 
as a bifurcation happens or as people downgrade the possibility of continuing to go in one direction and start increasing the probability of going in a different direction. And that's something that uh, I think markets haven't been used to, at least in mature markets, in the core markets like the U.S., the U.K., that type of political uncertainty is something that is really new and makes it very difficult because the core of these markets is your pricing anchor on how we price emerging markets and other more volatile environments. And if you have a big question mark and uncertainty in these core anchor markets that drive risk perception and spreads in other markets that are less mature and less certain, then you actually start having a problem in how you price risk in general. And I think we're starting, we're, at least for the last year and a half, we've seen that unfolding. And that's where the argument, you know, that's where your, your quote before comes from. It feels like you know, what used to be a sort of ground that is known, a stable environment, has actually become more volatile than we used to, so we have a hard time playing the same game with a different set of rules in the mature market. I have lots of sports analogies, if you like. One is the, the referees have come down to play. Um, let's go to questions, and uh, I'll take a cluster of them, if I may. Please introduce yourselves and, uh, and keep it to a brief question. Uh, so let's do... Uh, over there, the, uh, the person in the green cardigan at the back. And one, if we could go upstairs, we... Uh, lady here in the middle. Hi there, Oops. Nell McKenzie from Global Capital. Uh, what do you think the effect on banking has been from the lack of clarity, particularly surrounding the leaks this, this morning, from the UK's position... Uh, of negotiating around its financial services for Brexit. What has been the effect on banking and what do you see it being in the future? Lack of clarity from Brexit, uh, ma'am. My name is Sigrun Davidsdottir. I'm an Icelandic journalist. Um, one thing that's been quite prominent in news about banks for the last, uh, well, five, seven years are fines uh, for actually breaking the law. Uh, banks have been... Um, breaking the law such as UBS and other banks. Uh, ben Bernanke said recently that he thought that banks had not, it had been a mistake not to investigate banks um, after 2008. So I would like to ask your opinion on that and also if individual bankers should be uh, actually uh, brought to court, not just uh, the banks paying fines with shareholders' money. Good. And the third question before we... Yes, my, my name is Heli. I'm a former student here. Uh, Dr. Faber, you uh, confined your comments mostly, if not entirely, to the notion of uh, the speculative impact of markets by the kind of political uncertainties and the like. I would suggest that this actually is a very superficial account of the relationship because it misses and conceals the way in which the state actually underwrites markets. Now, we see that most overtly in Too Big to Fail. Okay, should we, we ask him to respond to that? So, superficial when the state actually underwrites markets. <coughs> so, we've got those three questions. Well, clarity, uh, to come to the first question on, on Brexit, um, I think the lack of clarity is really not something that is just down to one part of a complex set of negotiations. This is a negotiation between the UK government and the European government. And like in any negotiations, there are two sides to the table, and only over time we will see where that negotiation will end. But let me also be clear, the provisions put in the European treaty, like the two years you have to negotiate any exit from the European Union, have always been designed as a disincentive to depart from the Union because it's very hard to imagine that you can do these complex set of negotiations uh, within two years' time. Uh, just go back and talk, uh, for example, to uh, Liam Fox and, and people uh, in his department where for the first time in 45 years, the UK actually has to negotiate trade agreements with the rest of the world, having had trade agreements only by associations through, through the EU so far. So, and that just will tell you how complex the endeavor that the UK has embarked on is be, it will be. We all might wish for more clarity, I give you that, and actually it would be a key ingredient into a reasonable emergency planning for the next two years of any London-based operation of any bank. But at the same time, we have to fully understand that it is not 
just due to one side of the table, given more clarity, it is a complex set of negotiations, and that's why I firmly believe that banks will have to follow that process over time. I think we will only get some clarity in the 11th hour, like many of these negotiations that have a deadline. Many of the things will only be agreed if everything is agreed, so most of the negotiation will actually you know, be highly uncertain until almost uh, the last set of uh, months. So I think we just have to get used to the fact that the next two years will be volatile, that there will be challenges, and that any speech, as you indicated, by any member of the decision-making bodies here in the UK and in European will be priced in the market, and markets will reflect some volatility around that event. And it will take, because uncertainty that has come from that, it will impact negatively on the UK economy. It will also impact negatively on the European economy. So if you're looking for a set of headwinds that are specifically due to the European economy, Brexit is one of those headwinds. And it will not make a recovery in Europe easier or more sustainable. And therefore, I think we look at uh, the European economy at the moment uh, with an economy that is running with much more headwinds now than it maybe has run in the three or four years before those decisions were taken. There are counterbalancing effects, like the French election, the German election, will reassure uh, European voters and European firms that uh, we will continue to see continuity against uh, sort of a perception at the start of the year that populist movements could actually derail more economies uh, in Europe, but that's something that is where, where the political uncertainty has uh, reduced, diminished, it's not gone. So my view on Europe is still, despite all that, a constructive long-run view, uh, that I think the European economy is actually medium to long-term, going to weather these storms, but short-term, over the next two years, will face a lot of headwinds and volatility. And that is something that uh, I think increasingly uh, markets will understand. If you look at the foreign side, actually the fact that the U.S. is in a very similar predicament at the moment with the new administration uh, onboarding uh, less smoothly than previous administrations, uh, that gives Europeans some breathing space at this moment, but probably that will not last for long. On the issue on, on banking, uh, look, I joined banking after the financial crisis. Uh, my major job over the last five years has been uh, to sort out many of the issues you talked about. Uh, what is increasingly, what we're increasingly seeing, and many banks have done that, is the issue of personal responsibility is increasingly part of how we run banks. So, for example, clawbacks, uh, we pay some of our employees with uh, instruments that if there is a major operational risk event that occurs, uh, that will lead to massive write-downs of these instruments. So we basically have a lot of pay instruments that are more incentive compatible than uh, previous pay instruments before the crisis. I think the industry is learning its lessons. Uh, it, for me, for the financial industry to come back, it takes three things. The first one is to acknowledge that things went wrong and to basically start working on putting things right. And I think part of the workout process with law enforcement and with legal agencies has been part of this putting things back on their feet. The second one is prepare for the future. We need to make sure that personal accountability is really embedded into pay structures and into the governance structures on how we run banks. We're doing that, and I can tell you all the industry is moving massively on that. And the last thing is we have to be prepared that a crisis in the future can always happen. So the whole regulatory agenda that has been embarked upon is a key ingredient of making the financial system much more resilient, whether it's capital rules, whether it's liquidity rules. My fear at the moment is more that as we've largely made the system more stable, we're trying, and, you know, and, and really the core of that is having a level playing field with similar rules followed around the globe in every financial constituency, we're bordering onto losing that global level playing field and countries going off in different directions in terms of regulation, uh, even undoing or re reversing some of that. That is a major risk uh, at the current juncture, and I very much hope that the regulators in Basel uh, will complete their process, that they keep an eye on the fact that the financial system is now more resilient and governance has improved, and at the same time, uh, try and come to a conclusion that leads to regulation that is globally identified and, and the same everywhere. On uh, 
On your remark, the, the, the state underwriting banks, uh, it's actually not the case. We had an implicit government support in the Swiss financial system. Each of the bank had a rating support that was an implicit government guarantee. We worked very hard with the Swiss government to basically phase out that implicit guarantees. And if you now look at how rating agencies look at banks like ours, there is no implicit support. Actually, the whole Swiss too-big-to-fail regime was keenly designed to make sure that too big to fail is ended and that banks will become resolvable if there is a new crisis. And I think our entire resolution and recovery planning, our capital and liquidity planning, is all elements to work towards making the system more stable and making banks as part of the system resolvable in the future. So I don't, I don't agree with your judgment. The gentleman over there and then the gentleman up there. Hi, Kanwadi Palawalia, Bank of America. I just wonder if you could continue to develop some of your remarks about um, the likelihood of a downturn in, in the near term. Um, you made a few references to Brexit and also um, political aspects. But are you concerned about a central bank misstep or uh, obviously there's uh, considerable uh, military tensions in Asia? What, what do you think would, would be the most likely driver of a downturn? Okay, and the gentleman up there. Uh, Fernando Gonzalez, uh, Bank of England. So um, thanks for the um, fascinating talk. Uh, I just wanted to talk, I wanted to ask you about your uh, views uh, about the Eurozone, uh, the next steps and, and the key risks uh, for the Eurozone. Obviously taking into account that, um, uh, that when you were um, president of the Bundesbank, obviously you were uh, quite a strong opponent to, um, to QE, um, sort of uh, SMP type of, uh, of uh, policies. Thank you. So we'll take two more, the gentleman here and then the gentleman at the back. Yes. Uh, good morning. Olivier Vigneron from JP Morgan. Uh, I found it very interesting. You said that uh, managing to the worst outcome could have some um, self-fulfilling uh, mechanism around that worst outcome. Um, I was interested in a particular example that you may be worrying about. And the last... Uh, Dr. Weber, Agris uh, Lausenex, uh, Anglo-Baltic News. I wanted to ask you about... Um, hiring trends over the last four months of this year. Uh, in which departments do you expect to add most of the headcount? And in which <coughs> departments will you be uh, raising the most uh, salaries, where, where the yeah. biggest demand is? Thank you. Thank you. That would be good for the students as well who will be applying for jobs. <laughs> So I don't, uh, just to the question of the, I don't expect a, sh in a, a downturn in the short term. But if you look, for example, at the U.S. business cycle, we're now in the seventh year of a U.S. consecutive re uh, recovery, uh, longer than previous recoveries. And I think it is very likely, given where the U.S. Uh, economy stands, that we see some positive dynamics. But I do think that uh, over time we will see some weaknesses creep in. Uh, one of the things that uh, contributes to these weaknesses will actually be uh, part of the normalization of monetary policy. The other one is uh, wage price dynamics that are starting to kick in. I think it is very difficult uh, at this moment uh, to make the assessment that just because inflation hasn't reacted yet, that inflation is no longer a modern time phenomenon. I think that would be a misinterpretation of the likely balance sheet dynamics uh, that we're going to see in, in most of the, the markets. And I think it's also something that uh, really doesn't take sufficiently into account how wage price dynamics are going to unfold at a point in time where labor markets are at a 45-year low unemployment rate in the U.S. and at a 15 to 20-year low uh, here in the United Kingdom, uh, similar in Europe. We are at a point in time where I think the real economy is starting to see some bottlenecks, and that uh, will likely start kicking in and, and produce some, some headwinds for the economy, which, in my view, is, is not a short-term phenomenon, but over the next two to three years, I would not be surprised if the economy were to weaken further. Um, eurozone key risks. I think the eurozone key risks at the moment are largely in the political arena. Uh, printing money does not solve any of these problems. Uh, you can uh, basically paste over some of the cracks with easy money, but I don't think you can solve some of the underlying challenges uh, in the European economy. And those challenges come from demographics. They come from pension systems. There's a lot of broken promises we'll see around pension systems and how systems will evolve in the future. And our national economies and the European economy is just not geared at this stage to really counter these headwinds well. And for me, that means long periods of moderate 
to almost no growth, and that is not a very good environment. Adverse developments like the financial crisis, uh, in my view, had to be immediately countered with monetary policy, and I was always in favor of reducing interest rates uh, as fast as possible and reacting uh, with liquidity operations to the crisis. I just think that, in particular, QE uh, has, in addition to long-term, uh, has long-term downside effects, which were not clearly understood. And if you go back to the time when QE happened in Europe, it was not the type of QE that uh, the Fed is embarked on at that time. It was more a policy that made a distinction between uh, financing costs in core and peripheral countries and that intervened in the spreads in those countries. So it wasn't really monetary policy. It was a kind of uh, fiscal, it had a fiscal policy dimension. And uh, the ECB over time has tried to cure that by, with the current program where they basically in intervene in treasury markets across the board rather than just targeted intervention. But I think I'm still back on uh, the page that we do not know the long-term consequences of some of these liquidity operations, and therefore I'm quite skeptical that monetary policy is a key element of fixing these long-term issues. Adverse outcomes, examples. Well, look, um, if, you, if you run a bank today, um, you always look at three to five year scenarios on how you evolve your strategy, on how you invest money, how you gear your operations. And at the moment, it is harder than ever to get these medium to long term perspectives. Uh, there are no clear trends at the moment. So I think banking is going through a transformation. Banking also is something where, if you look at Europe, we have a market that still has many players. So in a way, Europe is overbanked. The usual profitability of banks is massively impacted, uh, impacted upon by flat yield curves, by negative interest rates, by all of the quantitative monetary policy programs, and it's very hard to imagine how banks can you know, ensure medium to long term their profitability unless they focus on core competences. And some of these core competences are not the same for all the bank. We as a Swiss bank have a different set of uh, competences we focus on. but. It is something where if you cannot rely on, on markets to the same degree as you can in the past, you need to focus on the areas where you can set yourself apart. And I think adverse outcomes uh, for us basically lead us to having a diversified set of portfolios and to try and be on top of developments independent of where they are. For, for us as a global bank, we have about 20,000 people in the U.S., we have about 20,000 people in Switzerland, and we have about 20,000 people in the rest of the world. So we run a global business model just because we want to diversify against being too dependent on a single market, say the home market. And that is for us, uh, you know, the diversification is the best way to actually ensure against these adverse developments. There are many examples of how adverse developments can hit you. The biggest risk Swiss banks faced was more than 20 years ago when there was a big correction in the Swiss housing market. That has led many of the Swiss banks to be internationally diversified, especially the large two banks, rather than focusing too much of their operations on the domestic market. And I think diversification and broadening operations will be a key element in banking uh, strategies. However, and that's the downside, and that's where these adverse development comes in, if we are starting to see a bifurcation of regulatory environments, if we're starting to see nationalist uh, and uh, domestic uh, competitive policies play out in banking, then I think uh, global banks will have it much harder to operate in the future than they have in the past. And that's a trend where I think there is a major risk involved. Last on hiring. Hiring trends, four months. Uh, I don't look at hiring trends at four months. That's not a relevant time horizon. <laughs> I would say, for us, really, if you ask me for the last four or five years on what our tr hiring trends has been, we have really increased uh, risk and operational staff, and we've reduced very strongly for us, as a, uh, for us in particular, our front office and our trading operation in the transformation of our business model. If you ask me where we will hire primarily in the next four years, which is more a time horizon that I uh, tend to look at, uh, my main point would be banking is going through a fundamental transformation through to new technologies. And gearing the bank to be advanced and well prepared for fintechs and disruptions and 
new intermediation coming into the market is the key part where we hire. And when I go, we have, a, we have here in London, we have one of our fintech hubs. When I go to the new parts of the bank, uh, we're trying to hire millennials, we're trying to hire the new people that can help us reinvent banking. Because banking as we used to know it, in my view, is largely going to be changed. Uh, and whether that's the transformational part of the bank, uh, whether that's the transactional part of the bank, many of these parts are going to be disintermediated by new technology. And you need to be on top of these new technologies. You need to work with disruptors to gear yourself to the front end of these developments. And I think many banks are, are, are taking up this challenge. And I don't think the banking industry can rest assured that unlike the music business, unlike, for example, uh, the taxi industry, there will not be new players driven by technology and artificial intelligence that will not take a big bite at your core client base and your franchise value. So you need to transform yourself to this new environment. And if I look at where we hire largely in the next four years, it will be that change the bank and innovate the bank part and much less in, uh, in other areas that were traditionally what we hired in. Thank you. With that, we have uh, come to the end of our time. If, I'm sorry I couldn't take... Uh, all of the questions, um, if you want to uh, address them all to John and JP, the co-directors of the Systemic Risk Center, afterwards I'm sure they'll be able to, uh, to take them. But I want to thank you all for, for being here. A special shout out to Professor Charles Goodhart for also being here. And uh, of course, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Axel Weber, for being with us.